Section 23 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrian Stevens. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Orchestral Literature and Orchestral Development, Part 1. 1. Most typical of the Romantic period, more typical even than its art of song, was its orchestral music. Here all that was peculiar to it, individuality, freedom of form, largeness of conception, sensuousness of effect, could find fullest development. The orchestra, in its 18th century perfection, was a small, compact, well-ordered body of instruments in which every emphasis was laid on regularity and balance. The orchestra of Liszt's or Berlioz's dramatic symphonies was a bewildering collection of individual voices and romantic tone qualities. It would hardly be an exaggeration to say that, whereas a Haydn symphony was a chaste design in lines, a Liszt symphony was a gorgeous tapestry of colour. Between the two, every instrument had been developed to the utmost of tonal eloquence which composers could devise for it. The number of kinds of instruments had been doubled or trebled, thanks partly to Beethoven, and the size of the orchestra in common use had been increased at least once over. The technique of orchestral instruments had increased astonishingly. Schubert's C Major Symphony which was declared unplayable by the orchestra of the Vienna Musikverein, one of the best of the age, is a mere toy compared with Liszt's or Berlioz's larger works. Such instruments as the horns and trumpets were greatly improved during the second and third decades of the century, so that they could take a place as independent melodic voices, which had been almost denied them in Beethoven's time. As an instrument of specific emotional expression, the orchestra rose from almost nil to its present position, unrivalled save by the human voice. It is doubtless true to say that this enlargement resulted from the technical improvements in orchestral instruments and from the increase of instrumental virtuosity, but the converse is much more true. The case is here not so much as with the piano that an improved instrument tempted a great composer to write for it, but rather that great composers needed more perfect means of expression and therefore stimulated the technicians to greater efforts. For, as we have seen, the musical spirits of the Romantic period insisted upon breaking through conventional limitations and expressing what had never before been expressed. They wanted overpowering grandeur of sound impressive richness of tone, great freedom of form and constant variety of colour. They wanted especially those means which could make possible their dreams of pictorial and descriptive music. Flutes and oboes in pairs and two horns and two trumpets capable of only a partial scale, in addition to the usual strings, were hardly adequate to describe the adventures of Dante in the Inferno. The literary and social life of the time had set composers thinking in grand style, and they insisted upon having the new and improved instruments 
which they felt they needed, upon forcing manufacturers to inventions which should facilitate complicated and extended passages in the wind, and the performers to the acceptance of these new things and to unheard-of industry in mastering them. Thus, the mere external characteristics of romantic orchestral music are highly typical of the spirit of the time. Perhaps the most typical quality of all is the insistence upon sensuous effect. We have seen how the denizens of the 19th century longed to be part of the things that were going on about them, how, basing themselves on the sentimental school of Rousseau, they considered a truth unperceived until they had felt it. This distinction between contemplating life and experiencing it is one of the chief distinctions between the classical and the romantic spirit everywhere, and between the attitude of the 18th century and that of the 19th in particular. When Rousseau offered the feelings of his new Heloise as justification for her conduct, he sent a shock through the intellectual minds of France. He said, in substance, Put yourself in her place and see if you wouldn't do as she did. Then ask yourself what your philosophic and moral disapproval amounts to. Within some fifty years, it became quite the craze of polite society to put itself in the new Heloise's place, and George Sand did it with an energy which astonished even France. Now, when one commences thoroughly to reason out life from one's individual feelings, it becomes necessary to reconstruct philosophy, namely, to construct it from the bottom up, from the demands and relations of the individual up to the constitution of the mass. And it is quite natural that, when insistence is thus laid on the individual point of view, the senses enter into the question far more largely than before. At its most extreme, this view comes to an unrestrained license for the senses, a vice typical of Restoration France, but its nobler side was its desire to discover how the other man felt and what his needs were, in place of reasoning on abstract grounds how he ought to act. Besides, since the French Revolution, people had been experiencing things so incessantly that they had got the habit. After the fall of Napoleon, they could not consent to return to a calm observation of events. Rather, it was precisely because external events had calmed down that they so much more needed violent experience in their imaginative and artistic life. The classical tragedies of the French Golden Age were indeed emotional and in high degree, but the emotions were those of types, not of individuals. They were looked on as grand aesthetic spectacles rather than as appeals from one human being to another. It was distinctly bad form to show too much emotion at a tragedy of Racine's, whereas in the Romantic period tears were quite in fashion. However great the human falsity of the Romantic dramas, they at least pretended to be expressions of individual emotions and were received by their audiences as such. The life of a follower of the arts in Paris in the twenties and thirties, or anywhere in Europe for that matter, was one of laughing and weeping in the joys and sorrows of others, moving from one emotional debauch to another, 
and taking pride in making the feelings of these creations of art as much as possible one's own. It was small wonder, then, that musicians did the same, that in addition to trying to paint pictures and tell stories, they should endeavour to make every stroke of beauty felt by the auditor, and felt in a physical sensuous thrill, rather than in a philosophic sense of beauty. And nothing could offer the romantic musicians a finer opportunity for all this than the timbres of the orchestra. The soft golden tone of the horn, the brilliant yellow of the trumpet, the luscious green of the oboe, the quiet silver-white of the flute, seemed to stand ready for the poets of the senses to use at their pleasure. In the vibrating tone of orchestral instruments, even more than in complicated harmonies and appealing melodies, lay their chance for titillating the nerves of a generation hungry for sensuous excitement. But we must remember that if these instruments have poetic and colourful associations to us, it is in large measure because there were romantic composers to suggest them. The horn and flute and oboe had been at Haydn's disposal, yet he was little interested in the sensuous characteristics of them which we feel so acutely. In great measure, the poetic and sensuous tone qualities of the modern orchestra were brought out by the Romantic composers. The classical orchestra, as we have seen in an earlier chapter, had originally been based on the string quartet, namely the first violins, the second violins, the violas and the cellos, with the double basses reinforcing the cello part. The string section completely supported the musical structure. This was because the strings alone were capable of playing complete and smooth scales and executing all sorts of turns and trills with nearly equal facility. Wind instruments in the 18th century were in a very imperfect condition. Some of them, like the trumpets, were capable of no more than eight or ten notes. All suffered from serious and numerous restrictions, Hence they were originally used for giving occasional colour or ornamentation to the music which was carried by the strings. About the middle of the century, the famous orchestra of the court of Mannheim, under the leadership and stimulus of Kennebich and of the Stamitz family, reached something like a solid equilibrium in the matter of instrumentation, and from its disposition of the strings and wind, all later orchestration took its rise. The Mannheim Orchestra became renowned for its nuance of effect, and especially for its organised crescendos and diminuendos. The ideal orchestra thus passed on to Haydn and Mozart was a string quartet with woodwind instruments for the occasional doubling of the string parts, and the brass for filling in and emphasising important chords. Gradually, the woodwind became a separate section of the orchestra, sometimes carrying the whole passage without the aid of strings, and sometimes combining with the string section on equal terms. With this stage, modern instrumentation may be said to have begun. The brass had to wait. Its individually was not much developed until Beethoven's time. Yet during the period of orchestral development under Haydn and Mozart, 
the strings remained the solid basis for orchestral writing, partly because of their greater practical efficiency and partly because the reserved character of the violin tone appealed more to the classic sense of moderation. And even with the increased importance of the woodwinds, the unit of writing was the group and not the individual instrument, barring occasional special solos. The latter history of orchestral writing was one of a gradually increasing importance and independence for the woodwind section, and later for the brass, and of individualization for each separate instrument. Mozart based his writing upon the Mannheim orchestration and upon Haydn, showing considerable sensitiveness to timbres, especially that of the clarinet. Haydn, in turn, learned from Mozart's symphonies, and in his later works for the orchestra further developed freedom of writing, being particularly fond of the oboe. Beethoven emancipated all the instruments, making his orchestra a collection of individual voices rather than of groups, though he was necessarily hampered by the technically clumsy brass. Yet, compared to the writing of Berlioz and Liszt, the classical symphonies were in their orchestration rather dry and monochrome, always making a reservation for the pronounced romantic vein in Beethoven. Haydn and Mozart felt orchestral contrasts, but they used them rather for the sake of variety than for their absolute expressive value. So that, however these composers may have anticipated and prepared the way for the Romanticists, the difference between the two orchestral palettes is striking. One may say it was the difference between Raphael's palette and Rubens. And in mere externals, the two Romanticists worked on a much larger scale. The string orchestra in Mozart's time numbered from 22 to 30 instruments, and to this were added usually two flutes and two horns, and occasionally clarinets, bassoons, trumpets and kettle drums in pairs. Beethoven's orchestra was a little larger than this, and the capabilities of his instruments only slightly greater. But his use of the various instruments as peculiar and individual voices was masterly. All the great composers of the second quarter of the 19th century studied his instrumentation and learned from it. But Beethoven, though he sought out the individual character of orchestral voices, did not make them sensuously expressive, as Weber and Liszt did. About the time of Beethoven's death, the use of valves made the brass possible as an independent choir, capable of performing most of the ordinary diatonic and accidental notes, and of carrying full harmony. But it must be said that even the most radical of the Romantic composers, such as Berlioz, did not avail themselves of these improvements as rapidly as they might, and were characteristic rather in their way of thinking for instruments than in their way of writing for them. The valve horns and valve trumpets came into use slowly. Schumann frequently used valve horns plus natural horns, and Berlioz preferred the vulgar cornet à piston to the improved trumpet. But the Romantic period added many an instrument to the limited orchestra of Mozart and Beethoven. Clarinets and trombones became the usual thing. 
The horns were increased to four, and the small flute or piccolo, the English horn, and the bass clarinet, or the double bassoon, and the ophiclade became frequent. Various instruments, such as the serpent, the harp, and all sorts of drums were freely introduced for special effects. Berlioz especially loved to introduce unusual instruments and quantities of them. For his famous Requiem, he demanded, though he later made concessions, six flutes, four oboes, six clarinets, ten bassoons, thirty-five first and thirty-five second violins, thirty cellos, twenty-five basses and twelve horns. In the tuba mirum, he asks for twelve pairs of kettle drums, tuned to cover the whole diatonic scale and several of the accidentals, and for four separate orchestras placed at the four corners of the stage, and calling for six cornets, five trombones and two tubers, or five trumpets, six ophiclades, four trombones, four tubers, and the like. His scores are filled with minute directions to the performers, especially to the drummers, who are enjoined to use a certain type of drumstick for particular passages, to place their drum in a certain position, and so on. His directions are curt and precise. Liszt, on the other hand, leaves the matter largely to the gracious cooperation of the director. Experimentation with new and sensational effects made life thrilling for these composers. Berlioz recalls with delight in his memoirs an effect he made with his arrangement of the Rakotzi March in Budapest. No matter, says he, did the rumour spread that I had written Honey, national, music, than Pest began to ferment. How had I treated it? They feared profanation of that idolised melody which for so many years had made their hearts beat with lust of glory and battle and liberty. All kinds of stories were rife, and at last there came to me M. Horwath, editor of a Hungarian paper, who, unable to curb his curiosity, had gone to inspect my march at the copyist. I have seen your Rakotzi score, he said uneasily. Well? Well, I feel horribly nervous about it. Bah! Why? Your motive is introduced piano, and we're used to hearing it fortissimo. Yes, by the gypsies. Is that all? Don't be alarmed. You shall have such a forte as you never heard in your life. You can't have read the score carefully. Remember, the end is everything. All the same, when the day came, my throat tightened, as it did in times of great excitement, when this devil of a thing came on. First the trumpets gave out the rhythm, then the flutes and clarinets, with a pizzicato accompaniment of strings, softly outlining the air, the audience remaining calm and judicial. Then, as there came a long crescendo, broken by the dull beats of the big drum, as of distant cannon. A strange, restless movement was perceptible among them, and, as the orchestra let itself go, in a cataclysm of sweeping fury and thunder, they could contain themselves no longer. Their overcharged souls burst with a tremendous explosion of feeling that raised my hair with terror. 
the bass drum beat pianissimo, as of distant cannon, has never to this day lost its wild and mysterious potency, but it must not be supposed that the Romanticist's contribution to orchestration consisted mainly in isolated sensational effects. Their work was marvellously thorough and solid. Berlioz, in particular, had a wizard-like ear for discerning and developing subtleties of timbre. His great work on orchestration, now somewhat passé, but still stimulating and valuable to the student, abounds in the mention of them. He points out the poetic possibilities in the lower registers of the clarinets, little used before his day. He makes his famous notation as to the utterly different tone qualities of one violin and of several violins in unison, as though of different instruments, and so on through hundreds of pages. The scores of the Romanticists abound in simple effects, unheard of before their time, which gain their end like magic. Famous examples come readily to mind. The muted violins in the high registers in the Dance of the Sylphs from the Damnation of Faust and the Clumsy Bassoons for the Dance of the Rude Mechanicals in Mendelssohn's incidental music to A Midsummer Night's Dream. The morose viola solo which reoccurs through Berlioz's Herald in Italy, the taps and rolls on the timpani to accompany the speeches of the devil in Der Freuschutz, or the flutes in their lowest register in the accompaniment to Agath's air in the same opera. All these are representative of the richness of poetic imagination and understanding of orchestral possibilities in the composer's of the Romantic period. 2. It was inevitable that the pure symphonic form should decline in esteem during the Romantic period, for it is based primarily on a love of pure design, the da capo scheme of statement, development and restatement, which remains the best method ever invented for vividly presenting musical ideas without extra-musical association or aid. It is primarily a mould for receiving pure musical material, and the Romantic period, as we have seen, had comparatively little use for music without poetic association. Of the best symphonies of the time, the greater part have some general poetic designation, like the Italian and Scotch symphonies of Mendelssohn, or the Spring and Rhenish symphonies of Schumann. These titles were, in some cases, mere afterthoughts or concessions to the demands of the time, and in every case the merest general or whimsical suggestion. Yet they can easily be imagined as fitting the musical material. They always manage to add interest to the work without interfering with the absolute musical value and even when they are without specific title, they are infused with the spirit of the age, delight in sensuous effects and rich scoring, emotional melody and varied harmonic support. For all this, as for nearly everything else in modern music, we must go back to Beethoven, if we wish to find the source, but for purposes of classification, Schubert may be set down as the first romantic symphonist. He adhered 
as closely as he could to the classical mould, though he never had a predominant gift for form. A beautiful melody was to him the lawgiver for all things, and when he found such a melody, it went its way, refusing to submit to the laws of proportion. Yet this willfulness can hardly be regarded as standing in the way of outward success. The unfinished symphony in B minor could not be better loved than it is. It is safe to say that of all symphonies, it is the most popular. It was written, two movements and a few bars of a scherzo, in 1822, was laid aside for no known reason, and lay unknown in Vienna for many years, until rescued by Sir George Grove. The mysterious introduction in the cellos and basses, as though to say, it happened once upon a time, the haunting second theme introduced by the cellos, the stirring development with its shrieks of the woodwind, all are of the very stuff of romantic music. A purist might wish the work less diffuse, especially in the second movement. No one could wish it more beautiful. In the great C major symphony, written in the year of his death, Schubert seems to have been attempting a magnum opus. If he had lived, this work would certainly have been regarded as the first composition of his second period. He laboured over it with much more care than was his custom, and showed a desire to attain a cogent form with truly orchestral ideas. The best parts of the unfinished symphony could be sung by the human voice. The melodies of the C major are at home only with orchestral instruments. The work was all but unprecedented for its time in length and difficulty. It is Schubert's finest effort in sustained and noble expression, and though thoroughly romantic in tone, his nearest approach to absolute music. It seems outmoded and at times a bit childlike today, but by sheer beauty holds its place steadily on orchestral programmes. Schubert's other symphonies have dropped almost completely out of sight. Mendelssohn's four symphonies, including the Italian, the Scotch and the Reformation, have had a harder time holding their place. It seems strange that Mendelssohn, the avowed follower of the classics, should not have done his best work in his symphonies, but these compositions, though executed with extreme polish and dexterity, sound thin today. A bolder voice might have made them live, but the Scotch and Italian in them are seen through Leipzig spectacles, and the musical subject matter is not vigorous enough to challenge a listener in the midst of modern musical wealth. As for the Reformation symphony, with its use of the Protestant chorale Ein Festeburg, a technically reformed Jew could hardly be expected to catch the militant Christian spirit. Yet these works are at their best precisely in their romantic picturesqueness, as essays in the Absolute Symphony they cannot match the nobility and strength of Schubert's C major. Schumann, the avowed romantic, had much more of worth to put into his symphonies, probably because he was an apostle and an image-breaker and not a polite synthesist. The spring 
Symphony in B-flat, written in the year of his marriage, 1840, the year of his most exuberant productivity, remains one of the most beautiful between Beethoven and recent times. The austerity of the classical form never robbed him of spontaneity, for the ideas in his symphony are not inferior to any he ever invented. The form is, on the whole, satisfactory to the purest, and beyond such innovations as the connecting of all four movements in the last symphony, he attempted little that was new. The four works are fertile in lovely ideas, such as the graceful folk song intoned by the cellos and woodwind in the third, or the impressive organ-like movement from the same work. Throughout, there is the same basic simplicity of invention, the combination of fresh melodic idea with colourful harmony, which endears him to all German hearts. It is customary to say that Schumann was a mere amateur at orchestration. It is certainly true that he had no particular turn for niceties of scoring or for searching out endless novelties of effect, and it is true that he sometimes proved himself ignorant of certain primary rules, as when he wrote an unplayable phrase for the horns in his first symphony, but his orchestration is, on the whole, well-balanced and adequate to his subject matter, and is full of felicities of scoring, which harmonise with the romantic colour of his ideas. Of the other symphonists, who were influenced by the romantic fervour, the greater part have dropped out of sight. Spohr, who may be reckoned among them, was in his day considered the equal of Beethoven, and his symphonies, though often manneristic, are noble in conception, romantic in feeling, and learned in execution. Of a much later period is Raff, a disciple of Liszt, and to some extent a crusader on behalf of Wagner. Like Spohr, he enjoyed a much-exaggerated reputation during his lifetime. Of his eleven symphonies, Imvalde and Leonora, both of a mildly programmistic nature, were the best known, the latter in particular a popular favourite of a generation ago. Raff further developed the resources of the orchestra without striking out any new paths. Many of his ideas were romantic and charming, but he was too often facile and rather cheap. Still, he had not a little to teach other composers, among them the American MacDowell, Gade, friend of Mendelssohn, and his successor at Leipzig, was a thorough scholarly musician, one of the few of the Leipzig circle who did not succumb to dry formalism. He may be considered one of the first of the national composers for his work, based to some extent on the Danish folk idiom, secured international recognition for the national school founded by J.P.E. Hartmann. Ferdinand Hiller, friend of Liszt and Chopin, wrote three symphonies marked by romantic feeling and technical vigour, and Reinecke, for many years the representative of the Mendelssohn tradition at Leipzig, wrote learnedly and at times with inspiring freshness. End of section 23